right, well, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 2? So for any who are new, we are uh, studying the book of Galatians here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. But instead of going through the book verse by verse, we're doing some of that. Uh, we decided to study it topically based on its main theme. And the main theme of Galatians is liberty. The liberty or the freedom that is ours in Christ. And so, as I said, when we began this series, we are going to focus our attention on three main areas or topics of liberty uh, that Paul brings up in this epistle. Liberty from lies, liberty from law, and then liberty for life. And in our study, we have entered into the second major section in our series, a series, by the way, where we're calling A Journey in Liberty Through Galatians. We're in that second main point, liberty from law, which is really, as we said, liberty from religion and legalism. So last time we uh, looked at um, the testimony of Paul, and that covered chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 10. Let me just read to you the first two verses of chapter 2 to get a running start on today's uh, study. But Paul said, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now, Paul tells us he went up to Jerusalem not by uh, man summonsing him. I mean, it wasn't that the apostles told him, hey, you better get up here a problem we want to talk to you no he was a, an equal he was a an apostle um, they didn't summon him but uh, he said the Lord revealed to me that I needed to go up I went up by revelation the Lord Jesus told me you need to get up to Jerusalem to get clarification from the apostles there in the church of Jerusalem uh, what they had to say about the teachings of the Judaizers you see, after Paul visited the area of Galatia proclaiming the gospel of grace and then moved on to share the gospel in other parts of Asia Minor and into Europe, he uh, later learned that the Judaizers had come into the area trying to pervert the gospel which he had given to them. The word Judaizer comes from a Greek verb meaning those who teach others to live according to Jewish customs and laws. And as we said last time, the Judaizers taught that in order for a Gentile to become a Christian, he first had to become a Jew. In other words, he had to get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and then he could exercise faith in Christ and become a Christian, get saved. Now, guys, the Judaizers' heresy had really corrupted the concept of many Jewish Christians as to how Gentiles were saved. And this was an issue so explosive that Paul understood, no doubt, why Jesus told him, Paul, you better get up there. Something's brewing. You guys need to have come to a consensus. You need to have unity on this issue because Satan's working. And he's going to blow the church apart if you don't get up to Jerusalem and work this out with the other apostles, finding out where they're coming from, what they believe about this. And so Paul met with the leaders there in Jerusalem privately. Why privately? Well, first of all, he was the new kid on the block, so to speak, as, as a new apostle. Uh, the others had been with Jesus from the beginning. But Paul even said in his later writings, I was an apostle born out of due season. In other words, I wasn't with the twelve. Uh, Jesus called me later. 
And as such, uh, he didn't want to come across like he was, you know, this, uh, uh, this you know, new guy, uh, knows everything. Now, Paul was convinced of what he believed. He wasn't waffling at all. Um, but he didn't want to come across like he was, you know, coming into town, guns blazing, uh, and, and publicly confronting the apostles. Just in case they disagreed with him, he would have to then, you know, uh, rebuke them publicly. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep it kind of low-key, kind of private. You see, he was a little nervous that the Judaizers had gotten to the apostles in Jerusalem and um, had swayed them into believing that Gentiles did have to become Jews before they could become Christians. And uh, he was nervous about that because he had been working very hard to bring Jews and Gentiles together. And if the apostles had bought into this teaching, it would have blown Paul's ministry to shreds because he had worked very hard to bring unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. Now what you're saying is only Jews can be saved. So you Gentiles, if you want to get saved, you've got to become Jews first. See, he knew that wasn't going to fly with the Gentile churches. Um, but remember something that we talked about last week. Many of these Judaizers were well-connected and powerful Jewish leaders. And as such, they held a lot of influence among the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem. And even though, as Paul discovered after talking with the other apostles in Jerusalem, even though the Judaizers weren't able to convince the apostles there that the Gentiles had to become Jews first before they could be saved, listen to me now, that didn't mean they hadn't influenced the apostles at all when it came to the law. So we saw the testimony of Paul. Now we want to look at the transgression of Peter. Look at verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, that was Paul's home church up in Syria, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now, guys, this is shocking and somewhat disturbing to me, but not all that surprising, given how powerful peer pressure can be. Yeah, usually among kids and teenagers, but also sometimes among adults. Of course, peer pressure is when you do something because you want to feel accepted and valued by your friends or your peers. What's shocking to me is that godly and mature Christians like Peter and Barnabas, and Paul says others, but the two he names, Peter and Barnabas, wow, um, I, I take them to be mature, godly men, and yet they fell prey to peer pressure. Uh, it says somebody has said the best of men are men at best. And it teaches us that we should never put leaders on pedestals. Don't ever put your leaders on pedestals because we're going to disappoint you. There's going to come a point where we might fall off. And sometimes not the way you think. It doesn't have to be a major sin, um, embezzling or heresy or, or committing adultery. Sometimes that's the case with some leaders. It, but it could be something that, you know, a doctrine you hold dear that we don't agree with, something non-essential, non-essential doctrine, uh, you know, whether, you know, the timing of the rapture or are the gifts 
of the spirit still around today, that kind of thing. And we're going to disagree, and, and, and so you're going to be disappointed. Um, it's going to happen. And um, as we said last week, Paul talks about when certain men, leaders of the church in Jerusalem, came from James. And as we said last time, this James was the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the epistle of James, and was also the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, guys, it gives us some insight into how much the Judaizers had infiltrated the church in Jerusalem and how much uh, influence and weight they carried among the leaders there, Peter, James, and others. Now, Paul was no respecter of people. We know that about him. And so he rebukes Peter publicly for his hypocrisy, not heresy, not heresy. Peter didn't embrace the false doctrine of the Judaizers. He didn't do that. That wasn't the issue that upset Paul. What upset him was Peter's hypocrisy. The Greek word is a word that is used of an actor on stage playing a part. It seems that Peter was playing a part for the Jewish leaders who had come from the church in Jerusalem, you know, acting for their benefit as though Gentile Christians were not as good as Jewish Christians, in some ways maybe inferior or second-class kingdom citizens. I don't believe for a second Peter actually believed that, that Gentile Christians were inferior to Jewish Christians, but he's playing a part. Now, as a Roman Catholic, we kind of did believe that. You know, I was going to Catholic school. It was never actually taught directly, but it was implied that while Protestants can get to heaven, they're never going to be where we are as, as Catholics. Because, you know, God made heaven for us. I mean, he's letting them slip in, but heaven was made for us, you know. And, uh, but I don't think Peter believed that for a second, even though he's supposed to be the guy guarding the pearly gates when Catholics get up there. Don't, don't buy into that. Now listen, when Paul was in Jerusalem, where that was Peter's church, he didn't rebuke Peter publicly. But now that Peter was in Paul's church there in Antioch, he rebuked Peter to his face for his hypocrisy. I mean, Paul is basically saying, Peter, come on. I, mean, I saw you at the church barbecue yesterday enjoying those ham sandwiches and pork ribs. You're having a great old time. You're fellowship with the Gentiles. Everything was wonderful. Now today you're acting all what? Mosaic? You're trying to, you're trying to impress these, these big shots from Jerusalem? They're nobody. They're like us. None of us are anybody. Not that Paul was putting them down. He's just saying, look, we're all servants saved by grace. What are you getting like you need to impress these guys, right? Um, guys, what was, what was going on in the church in Jerusalem that uh, Peter felt so much peer pressure that it caused him to act this way? Well, to understand that, we need to turn to Acts 21. And I want to kind of look at this for a few minutes because I'll, I'll be honest with you. This has bothered me from the very first day I read it. I'll show you what I mean. Acts 21, starting with verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So Paul, Barnabas, Titus, they, they go up to Jerusalem. 
And the church there was glad to see Paul. They loved him, uh, no doubt. Uh, but they were also glad to see him because he had brought a gift of money from the Gentile churches for the Christian Jews there living in Jerusalem. They were going through a famine. Some other things had gone on, and they were enduring a lot of hardship at this time. And Paul thought, well, you know, the Gentile Christians owe the Jewish people a lot of uh, a big debt. I mean, they were the ones that kept the word of God all those centuries, make sure it was copied correctly, the Old Testament scriptures, so that they could have a copy of God's word. They were the chosen people of God. They endured a lot of hardships to bring the new covenant uh, into play. And so Paul thought, what a great way to bring unity between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. I'll take up a collection among the Gentile churches and bring it to the saints that are in Jerusalem to show them how much the Gentiles love them. It's going to really go a long way to bringing the two together. Unfortunately, what Paul encountered in the church in Jerusalem must have saddened his heart. Verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail the things uh, which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, there could have been more than a hundred elders uh, in the church of Jerusalem at this time. By Acts chapter 5, there were some 20,000 members who were attending that church. This is 20 plus years later. So there's a lot, there's a lot of people. This was a this was a, a, the first mega church, okay, uh, all the way back in the first century. But um, the word myriads there is a Greek word that means tens of thousands, tens of thousands. Now, guys, the statement by James in verse 20, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law in the Greek. It actually reads, they are all zealots. For the law. These were Jewish Christians who remained devoted to the ceremonial aspects of the law, not for salvation, but for the daily practice of their lives. Now, first of all, let me say this. There's a lot of people in this church, and I didn't know any of them. Okay, I can't vouch for them. I'm sure there were some. In any good church, you're going to have people that profess to be Christians but are not saved. And I'm thinking that with all these Jews, and all these Jews committed to the law, I have to believe that some of them did believe that the law was necessary to be saved. I'm sure there were some, all right? But for the, I know the apostles didn't believe that. And there was probably the majority of Jewish Christians who didn't believe that. So why were they clinging to the law so tightly for their daily practice? Uh, well, there's reasons for that, okay? And, and I'll get to those, but... Let me read to you what one author said about this. And he really, I think, put his finger on what was going on. And I want to read it to you, okay? He said, and I quote, These were Jewish Christians who remained devoted to the ceremonial aspects of the law. While not viewing it as a means of salvation, they still ob observed its required feasts, Sabbath regulations, ritual vows, and dietary restrictions. Why were they still clinging to the customs and rituals of the Old Covenant? Well, first of all, because those customs and rituals had been established by God. 
Coming to faith in Jesus Christ enhanced these Jewish believers' love for God and desire to obey him and thus may have motivated a greater zeal for the old ceremonies. Second, the apostles and other leaders in the, in the Jerusalem church did not oppose the continuation of these practices. Nowhere in the New Testament are Jewish believers condemned for observing them. In fact, Paul commands tolerance for such weaker brothers until they grow to understand their freedom in Christ and can use it with a clear conscience. The Jerusalem Council, which we studied last week, Acts 15, while forbidding the imposition of old covenant rituals on Gentiles, did not prohibit Jewish believers from continuing to observe them. God himself was tolerant during this period of transition, knowing how difficult it was for the Jewish Christians to break with their past. He also knew that in a few years, this would no longer be a dominant issue in the church. After the Jewish revolt against Rome, which took place between 66 and 70 AD, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem, the influence of the Jerusalem church waned. Christianity gradually became a predominantly Gentile faith, and other churches such as Antioch and Alexandria ascended to the forefront, end quote. Uh, that kind of sketches out what's happening. Uh, I believe, as this author points out, that most of these Jewish believers there in Jerusalem didn't believe in the law for salvation. They knew it was by faith in Christ through God's grace. But they still clung to it for kind of a daily practice. And we'll see why more uh, in a moment. But again, Acts 21, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said to him, You see, brother how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Verse 21, But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs of Moses. Um, there were people out there. Paul had a lot of enemies, and a lot of them were Jews. And there were a lot of people out there in Paul's day spreading lies about him. And uh, part of the lies were that he had become anti-Jewish. That uh, as he was going around on his missionary journeys, he was telling Jews to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their little boys and so on. Now, that wasn't true, but that was the rumor that had gotten back to the leaders there in Jerusalem. And that's why I believe, guys, and this is my conviction, I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But he had to leave it anonymous because there was so much bad blood, blood, so much lies about Paul, that if he would have wrote, it was sent to the Hebrews, we know it was sent to the Jews, but if they would have saw Paul's name on it, they would have thrown it in the garbage. They wouldn't even have read it. So Paul purposely left it anonymous. But Paul was not anti-Jewish, of course. He had a big heart for his Jewish countrymen. He himself kept some of the, the Passover and, uh, and Pentecost, and he took a ritual vow, uh, the vow of a Nazarite. He wasn't against those things. He didn't look at those things, of course, to, to get him closer to God in the sense where God, he earned God's favor through these things. But he practiced them because he, he was able, in his own personal walk, to draw closer to God at these times because he has this Jewish background. There was nothing wrong with it, as long as... You're not looking at these things to, as a way to earn God's favor and earn a place in heaven. And Paul, of course, didn't do that. But one commentator said this, and I quote, he said, Paul 
did warn the Gentiles not to get involved in the old religious practices of Judaism, but uh, he nowhere told the Jews that it was wrong for them to practice their customs so long as they did not trust them for salvation or make their customs a basis for fellowship. So, you know, if a Jewish Christian was going to say, well, if you don't observe Passover and Pentecost and, and dietary restrictions, I can't fellowship with you. Well, that's wrong. That, that's, of course, wrong. But if they wanted to observe it just for their own personal walk, the author says Paul didn't have a problem with that. There was freedom to observe special days and diets. You can read Romans 14. There was freedom to observe special days and diets, and believers were not to judge or condemn one another, end quote. And so, guys, once again, the issue with Peter wasn't that he had embraced the, the Judaizers' heretical teachings. Uh, what upset Paul was Peter's hypocrisy in that when Peter was visiting Paul's home church there in Antioch, he ate with the Gentile believers. He fellowshiped with them. No problem. He's having a good old time. But when the Jewish leaders of the church in Jerusalem showed up, well, he withdrew from the Gentiles and would only eat and fellowship with the Jewish believers. Again, it seemed that Peter was acting in a way that made Gentile Christians feel as though they were inferior to Jewish Christians. And I don't believe for a second he actually believed that, but he was sure acting like it. That's why Paul called him a hypocrite. You're playing a part, Peter. Why? You impress these guys from Jerusalem? And, and that really was what made Paul angry. Back to Galatians chapter 2. Let's read verse 13 again. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, with Peter, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, if you, being a Jew... Live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Let me stop there. That's a difficult verse. And when I first taught Galatians, um, I did a little study on that verse because it was like a little confusing. Um, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. What does that mean, right? And so looking at numerous translations and commentators let me just read to you what the how the new living translation translates it because it keeps it simple and i think it probably is the best uh, idea uh, that they communicated of this verse so here's what they say uh, they quote paul as saying uh, you and i are jews by birth not sinners like the gentiles and so the idea is this peter you know, we we were not raised in pagan culture like the gentiles They've never had a godly heritage. We were raised with Judaism. We were raised as God's people. We knew better. We were not sinners like the Gentiles, but even we, not even we could live under the burden of the law. And so by Jesus' grace, dying on the cross, offering us salvation as a free gift, we've been freed from the works of the burden of the law, didn't Jesus say? Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will have rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the law. Peter, we were delivered from the burden of the law. Now you want to put the Gentiles under the same burden we ourselves couldn't live under? Verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. We're going to have a whole bunch to say about this idea of justification and righteousness as we progress in Galatians and especially as we move into Romans chapter 4 on Wednesday night. But Paul is basically saying, come on, Peter, even we Jews came to realize that the works of the law couldn't justify us. As Christians, there are theological terms that we think we understand, but sometimes really don't. And if you don't really nail down some of these key theological concepts, righteousness, justification, and so on, you're not going to fully appreciate what you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, and you're not going to be able to communicate that properly to others that you witness to. Let me just quote to you uh, something Warren Worsby said. He, I love him as a commentator because he's simple. He keeps it simple. And he communicates well. Uh, not simplistically, but simply uh, in a way that we can understand. Uh, let me just read what he said. He said, and I quote, In justification, God declares the believing sinner righteous. Before the sinner trusts Christ, he stands guilty before God. But the moment he trusts Christ, he is declared not guilty, and he can never be called guilty again. Very important point. Justification is not simply forgiveness. Because a person could be forgiven and then go out and sin and become guilty once more. Once you have been justified by faith, you can never be held guilty before God. Justification is also different from a pardon. Because a pardoned criminal still is a record. When the sinner is justified by faith, his past sins are remembered against him no more, and God no longer puts his sins to his account. End quote. See, that's the thing. We have to understand, and this is why I'm a firm believer in eternal security. We can disagree on this. But I believe if you're really saved, you're in Christ. He's taken all of your sins, past, present, and future, Colossians 2, 13 to 14, nailed it to his cross, and writes on the bottom of your ledger to telestai. That's what Jesus said from the cross, paid in full. He said it is finished. To telestai could be translated paid in full. All your sins are under the blood. So how's God going to hold something against you that you lose your salvation and go to hell? But a lot of folks, they, God love them. I know I've talked to them. I know where they're coming from. I know the verses they're using to say a Christian can lose their salvation. I don't believe that. And it gets into something we're going to talk about in just a minute. Okay? But um, so, so hold that thought. But I want you to look at verses 17 and 18 now. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. You got that? Pretty clear. Let's move on. I mean, what, what is he actually saying here? Well, let me tell you what I think. I, I think he's responding to his critics, his opponents, that were going around saying that Paul was teaching antinomianism, which literally means no law. He was teaching lawlessness. What does that mean? Well, Paul's enemies argue that since 
Paul taught that justification by faith eliminated the need for the law, well, it encouraged sinful living. A person, they were saying, could believe in Christ for salvation and then do as he or she pleases. Because Paul says it. I mean, the law, that's what keeps us walking on the straight and narrow. You throw that out because we're saved by grace. We don't have to live for God anymore. A person could live a sinful life because they're saved by grace. See, this is what Paul, Paul's wrong. This is evil. Well, first of all, that's not what Paul's saying. And if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you because of salvation by grace through faith, you don't want to sin more, you want to sin less. So that's just a fallacy. That's a false argument. Um, but this is a common argument today, guys. This is a common argument by legalists against the preaching of pure grace today, that it encourages sinful living. And Paul responds by saying, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. That would make Christ a minister of sin. You see it there, I think verse um, uh, 17. That's nonsense to say this, that the gospel through Jesus Christ encourages sinful living because, you know, we're not saved by the law. Paul says that's nonsense. That would make Christ a minister of sin, or in other words, a promoter of sin. Besides, he goes on to say this, and let me paraphrase, okay? And I wanted to paraphrase this in such a way that it really communicates what I believe Paul is saying, because the verses are a little hard to understand, okay? But here's what I believe Paul is actually saying. He goes on to say, by going back to the law, legalism, you are building up what you tore down. This means that you're admitting that you were wrong in the first place, that you were wrong or sinful to tear down the law in the first place. And that means that you're declaring to the world that the gospel of grace in Christ was a false way of getting saved to begin with. So after he, you know, hits their argument, exposing it for the fallacy it contained, he then advocates for his position once again. He's arguing, guys, grace and grace alone can save us. Listen to me now. And also sanctify us after we are saved. Hold on to that thought. It's going to be critical to the rest of this section in uh, the liberty from law. It will come into play at the end of this message. But understand, Paul is saying not just that by grace and grace alone we are saved. Yes, he's definitely saying that. He's also saying, but it's by grace that we are sanctified after we're saved. He's going to hit this pretty hard in chapter 3, starting with verse 1. So, yeah, we're saved by grace, but we're also sanctified by grace. And if you try to add law to the whole process, that doesn't make us more righteous. It only condemns us because the law can't save. It can only condemn Let's look at verses 19 to 21. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Wow. Um, there is so much in these verses. So much that is absolutely vital to our walk with God as Christians. Uh, we haven't got time to dig into this, okay? So I want to take whatever minutes we have left this morning and just look at verse 19, come back and pick it up next week with verses 20 and 21. 
But um, verse 19, once again, Paul said, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Notice that Paul didn't say the law died. He said, I through the law died to the law. What does he mean? What's he talking about? Well, you'd have to read Romans 7. You can do that uh, at your leisure. But in Romans 7, Paul talks about the time in his life when he believed that keeping the law would bring him life, eternal life. And because he had kept himself from all outward violations of the law, you know, like murder, stealing, blaspheming, etc., he believed the law was bringing him life, eternal life in heaven. That is until he stopped to reflect upon the final commandment of the Decalogue, the final of the ten. Thou shalt not covet. You see, guys, all the other commandments dealt with outward actions, which Paul believed he had kept. But the tenth commandment dealt with inward attitudes, or in other words, sins of the heart. Sins of the heart would include lust, hatred, envy, jealousy, and so on. Remember that Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart in the eyes of God, he's committed adultery with her. Or if you harbor hatred in your heart towards someone else, in God's eyes you've murdered them. Because Jesus wanted to bring the law back up to where God originally intended it. So high nobody could ever attain to that level of perfection. Because the Pharisees had dragged it all down, and taught people that they were keeping the law. They weren't keeping the law because it wasn't just about outward actions that God was concerned about. It was the inward attitudes of the heart because that's where sin starts. All sin starts in the heart before it ever gets translated into our daily lives. And so Jesus was saying, look, just because you haven't murdered somebody, you've committed adultery, you think you're keeping the law, guys? No, you're not keeping the law. If you've lusted or hated or, or committed any one of a number of sins in your heart, God sees the heart. And it was then that Paul realized he had broken the law of God many times in his heart, which meant the law wasn't saving him. <laughs> the law was actually condemning him. He said in Romans 7, verse 10, So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. And that's why Paul said here in verse 19 of Galatians 2, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. In other words, let me paraphrase. Paul is saying, look, I thought the law was a life giver, going to give me life, eternal life. But I realized it was a killer. It was a killer. The law killed me. It condemned me to eternal death and hell. And it was then, Paul said, that I died to the law as a way of making me righteous and earning me a place in heaven because I realized the law couldn't do that. So the law killed me. It killed my uh, efforts to use it to be saved because now I realize the law couldn't bring salvation. Just like somebody has said, look, the law is in, was intended by God to show us our sin, not to cleanse us of sin. It's like a mirror. A mirror is designed to show you the dirt in your face. You don't then take the mirror off the wall, rub, rub it on your face to clean yourself. The mirror drives you to water for cleansing. And the law shows us our sin to drive us to Christ for cleansing. That's the idea. And Paul said, when I realized that, I died. The law killed me. I died to the law. And I found a new and better way to live to God. No doubt Paul had in mind what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Nobody gets to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me, not by the works of the law. No flesh shall be justified by that. All right, all very important, right? Life and death stuff. If you, if you don't understand saved by grace and you try to work for it, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. It's all very important. But again, guys, I don't think that that is ultimately what's going on with Peter and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem. As we have said before, they had not, had not embraced the heresy of the Judaizers that Gentiles had to become Jews first before they could get saved. And most importantly, they didn't believe that keeping the law was essential for salvation. So then, what's going on here? What's with their adherence to the law? They're, they're clinging to it for life almost. And I got to say to you, and I might be wrong, when Paul meets with these elders, again, might, might be a hundred or more of them, and he begins to tell them all the things that God's doing in the, among the Gentiles, to me, I could be wrong, it almost sounds like they, oh, that's great, Paul, brush it off. Now, we got a lot of Jews that are zealous for the law here. And they go on. Like, that was the most important thing. Not that God was saving Gentiles per se. I'm sure they were happy about that. They did glorify the Lord. But it's almost like this issue had become the dominant issue in their hearts and minds and in the church. What was going on? Why were they clinging to the law so tightly after they had been saved by grace? And why were they being so zealous in imposing it on the Gentiles? Let me tell you what I think is going on. It could be that even though Peter and the other apostles didn't believe that the Gentiles had to keep the law to be saved. I'm totally convinced. They did not believe. Anyone, especially the Gentiles, had to keep the law to be saved. But it could be that they believed that even though the Gentiles were saved without the law, they could never be fully sanctified without the law. And I think we're on solid ground because that's exactly the issue he raises in chapter 3. Having been made perfect by the Spirit, are you now working in the flesh to, what, be all that God wants you to be? It seems like these Jewish believers, many of them, had come to a place where they believed, okay, no, we don't believe Gentiles are saved by keeping the law. The law doesn't save us. We're saved by grace. But as Jews, we believe you can't be fully sanctified. You can't bear the fruit God wants you to bear. You can't be the person God wants you to be unless you embrace the ceremonial aspects of the law for, listen, not for salvation, but for sanctification. In other words, guys, without observing the ceremonial aspects of the law, the Feast of Moses, the Sabbaths, uh, the ritual vows, the dietary restrictions, the Gentiles, at least the Jewish people believe this, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, the Gentiles would never be all that God desired them to be. They could never be as good and as fruitful in God's eyes as the Jewish believers were. The Jewish believers who had was still embracing the law. Again, not for salvation, but for sanctification, fruitfulness, and blessing. I've heard this argument today. You'd be shocked. Maybe some of you realize it, but there are Christians today who feel the same way about the law for sanctification as the Jewish Christians did back in Paul's day. There are Christians who have embraced what is called the Hebrew Roots Movement who hold the similar beliefs that you cannot be all that God wants you to be unless you embrace your Hebrew roots. You got to, you know, observe the feast days and the Sabbaths 
and so on and so forth. Because if you don't, you cannot be all that God, you can't please God uh, fully. You can't be uh, fruitful as fully as God wants you to be. You have to cling to your Hebrew roots to be all that God wants you to be. Some people believe that today, and I believe uh, the Jews back in Paul's day believed that. What is this Hebrew roots movement all about? Well, one author had this to say about this movement that has come into the church. The author said, and I quote, The Hebrew roots movement is, in general, an attempt by its adherents to draw closer to God by gleaning things from Judaism that are perceived to be biblically significant and valuable. Though the movement includes Jews who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, for the most part it comprises non-Jewish professing and true Christians or Gentiles. The Hebrew roots movement technically is not a movement as we would normally define one. There is no national organization or hierarchy of leadership among this group, yet there are leaders and writers from diverse ad hoc organizations, churches, and ministries who favor the trend. And I think that's what it is. It's a trend. Uh, these things come blown through the church, these fads. And they do a lot of damage. Um, you know, Paul in what Ephesians 4 said, you know, stay in the word. Uh, encourage one another that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, stay with the basics. All right? Don't get hooked into the latest fad blown through the church. But there are all kinds of organizations, churches, and ministries who favor this trend. Within the subculture of the Hebrew Roots movement, churches may be called synagogues, pastors may be called rabbis, and Jesus may be referred to as Yeshua, depending on the whim of the leader or leaders. That make-it-up-as-you-go-along concept was demonstrated when one Christian rabbi, quote-unquote, this is a Gentile, who's a pastor, he's called himself a rabbi, all right? This guy, this whatever church this was, or synagogue this was, um, Wrapped a prosperity teacher. That's the key. A lot of these folks are into the Word of Faith movement. Okay, but anyways. So this one Christian rabbi wrapped a prosperity teacher, I guess who had come to visit in the church there, uh, in a Torah scroll, called the teacher king, seated him in a chair, and had ushers parade him around the sanctuary on their shoulders. Yeah, it gets pretty nuts out there. Okay, I get people all the time coming to church and saying, you have no idea what's out there. You have no idea what the craziness that's out there. Just teach. Can I just hear the word taught? Like, come on in. Okay? Because we're not into all that goofiness, sensationalism. We're not trying to sway you or, or get you in here because we're doing some weird thing that nobody else is doing. Look at us. We're more spiritual. We just want to teach you the word. That's all. The attraction for many to the Hebrew roots movement is often motivated by a love for the nation of Israel. Amen. We love Israel. Nothing wrong with churches that love Israel. A church that doesn't love Israel, that's a problem for me. Okay? So a lot of these folks are motivated by their love for the nation of Israel. God bless them. That's wonderful. And the author says that too. They're motivated by a love for the nation of Israel and its culture and traditions. However, those feelings have taken multitudes beyond a biblically acceptable attitude towards things Jewish and into beliefs and practices, practices that are contrary to the teachings of Scripture. For some, the Hebrew Roots movement has led them into a gospel of works, 
which the Apostle Paul warned against and condemned in his epistle to the Galatians. I'll read chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 out of the NLT. He quotes it, O foolish Galatians, Paul speaking, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? No, of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ, the, the gospel of grace, right? How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? End quote. All right, listen, we're done, but I want to set this up for next time. Let me just say this. The devil will always work in your life to put you back under the law in some way, shape, or form. Why? Because only then will he be able to condemn you when you don't live up to the law. And unfortunately, many Christians in the Hebrew Roots movement, and there's probably others, who have voluntarily put themselves under the law because they believe it's necessary to please God, to be all he wants them to be. I'm not saying their motives are wrong. God bless a person who wants to draw closer to God, right? But we have to do it in the right way. I mean, it's like David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, right? After the Philistines had captured it. And what did David do? He had a good, good intentions, good motives. He just didn't read the scriptures on how the Ark was to be transported. So what's he do? He doesn't put it on the shoulders of the Kohathites who held it on poles. They were trained to do that. Uzzah, by the way, was a Kohathite, a family of the Levites. God made very specific uh, his instructions on how the ark was to be moved. First of all, was to be you got to walk in backwards, the Kohathites, with a covering to cover. You didn't even look at it. Then you didn't touch it. There were poles that you slid in through rings on the bottom, and they picked it up and put it on their shoulders and carried it that way. Well, David, in his zeal, well-intentioned as he, he might have been, he decides he's going to do it the way the Philistines did it. Puts it on a cart to bring back to Jerusalem. It's bouncing around there in the ruts and rocks of the road. And one time it hits a rut or a rock big enough where the whole cart begins to go over and the ark looks like it's going to topple off into the ground. And Uzzah, who is walking alongside of it, grabs it. Reflex action. To steady it. You don't want it falling off into the dirt. God strikes him dead on the spot. The moral to that story is it's good to want to do a good thing for God. We have to do it the right way. We have to do it God's way. Got to do it God's way. And I don't challenge the motives of folks that want to draw close to God. I challenge their methods if they're unbiblical. Many of these folks have voluntarily placed themselves back under the law because they have bought into a teaching that says you got to embrace your Hebrew roots. And there was a lot of stuff in, in Judaism that we need to grow and to be fruitful and to be like Christ. Where, where does it say that in the Bible? And so they embrace it. And by embracing it, guys, listen, they have fallen right into the devil's trap. Right into his trap. And this is why Paul was so adamant in his fight against the Judaizers. Because he knew, he knew, that far from the law helping and enhancing our walk with God, listen, it would destroy our walk with God by putting us under the legalism of the law where Satan could condemn us. Look, I'll end with this. The devil can never condemn you if you're relating to God by grace and not by law. You know what grace means? Getting what you don't deserve. It's a word that means a gift. Starting with salvation. 
See, when we put ourselves under the law, and we may not even think of it, but here's what we're doing. We're telling ourselves that we have to do certain things to please God, earn his favor, and, and earn the blessings he gives to us. And when we don't measure up, we feel condemned because Satan's right there. But if we realize I don't deserve anything from God, everything he has given me, starting with my salvation and everything after it, has been a gift of his grace for an unworthy person such as me, but God loves me. But I always want to give God a reason for loving me, don't, don't we? And the devil's right there feeding that. See, we human nature is loaded with pride. I can't, I just, it's hard for me to accept a gift. I want to do something that will allow me to think I kind of earned it in some way. And that's the law. And if Satan can get you to think that God really loves you now, he loves you, he's kind of fond of you, but he's not going to really love you and bless you and make you fruitful and all that unless you do certain things, embrace your Hebrew roots or whatever. He's got you right where he wants you. And he can put you under condemnation. And when you don't measure up, you don't feel like a Christian. You feel God's against you. You, you want to write off your Christianity, and many have. I told you about one lady in the, uh, that came to our church for a while, came from a very legalistic church. Uh, we tried to get her free. We tried to give her scripture, but she went back as she just couldn't break away from all that legalistic teaching, and finally she committed suicide. You can't live under the law. It condemns. It was never intended to make us righteous. But if you walk by grace, relate to God through his grace, I don't deserve anything wrong, but if you want to bless me, I'll, I'll take it. Thank you. I'm not going to try to earn it because I don't deserve it. But if you want to bless me, Lord, who am I to say no to that? Right? And I just accept it by grace. The devil can't condemn me because I'm not working for anything. I'm just receiving what God's given by his grace, right? We'll go, we'll continue this next time. Father, we thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you that you have delivered us from the curse of the law. They, the law was good, Lord. You gave it. Uh, you said in Romans it was holy, just, and righteous, but it was our inability to keep it. And Lord, thank you that you delivered us from that system and put us under grace where you did all the work, you paid the price. All we have to do is receive it by faith and say thank you. We just praise you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.